Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to worship and to fellowship this afternoon as we enjoy the Sabbath together here in Collegedale. Bless our time and our experience. May your word speak to us and may we also be able to see that your word is reliable today. We thank you for your love for us and for bringing us together to this place. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got three topics that I'm sharing, and you guys are free. I know you're going to move probably to different places uh, and different, different venues. Uh, there's a lot of great seminars, and always the problem being a presenter is you'd wish you could hear some of your colleagues giving presentations elsewhere. So feel free to, to move about and around. Uh, but we're going to deal here with the issue of archaeology. And uh, does someone have a program for the exact title? I think I got it. Yeah, this is, of course, that's the topic there. But um, the, the name of the uh, series is Archaeology, Science, and the Bible. Many people, when they find out I'm a Christian, say, wait a minute, didn't you say you were an archaeologist? How do those two things work together? And uh, there's a lot of challenges out there today uh, in the field of biblical studies, in the field of archaeology, as people on all different levels are questioning the historical sources and wondering whether those historical sources are valid. Today we're going to go to ancient Egypt. Egypt is a fascinating country. I've been there many, many times. And a country filled with ancient temples. A country filled with the fascinating pyramids. Uh, Structures that were built we don't know. by whom or how long it took. Some estimate perhaps it took 120,000 slaves 20 years to build one pyramid. We're not sure, but we certainly uh, are are confronted with these huge buildings that that Moses would have already seen, uh, that Abraham saw before Moses, long before, and that have been existing in that country for many years. And you may not realize this, but until the Eiffel Tower was built in France in the 1800s, the Great Pyramid was the tallest building in the world. Okay, so you think about the tallest buildings today, and you think about the monumental architecture of Egypt. These were sophisticated, educated people who were building these structures many years ago. I mean, how how long would the Sears Tower last? Would it last 4,000 years? How long would, um, would some of the other tall buildings in the world, they've now, you know, gone beyond the Sears Tower. I recently was reading some of the new skyscrapers that are being planned in places like Beijing and, and uh, Dubai and different parts of the world. So the pyramids fascinate people and thousands, millions of tourists come to Egypt every year to see these places. The Hittites are mentioned in the Bible and mentioned in Egyptian texts over 28 times. And the question for many years was, by Bible scholars and by historians, the Hittites are mentioned in the Bible, but we don't have any record of them anywhere outside the biblical record. Uh, Did they even exist? Did that people even exist? It wasn't until 1906 that the Turks were working in the site, near the site of Hattusha, And there they uncovered the capital city of this ancient civilization. Not only the city, but an entire library was uncovered of cuneiform tablets, 
uh, and and uh, I was just there again this summer. This is in central Turkey. Uh, it's a site that sprawls over many, many different places, or I should say hills. It's a huge site. You have to take a bus to get from one end to the other, okay? I mean, not, not like uh, some of the other cities in the ancient Near East. This was a vast capital city of an empire that rivaled Egypt during the time of Mesopot uh, during the time of Moses and during the New Kingdom period. So you can see here are some of the temples, multiple temples. They worshiped a pantheon of gods. Later on this afternoon, we're going to talk about the gods and goddesses of ancient Israel and the pantheon and how uh, religion in Israel uh, was affected uh, by the surrounding worship. But again, it wasn't until that discovery was made and then recently, um, as Egyptology has taken off, we now know that the Hittites were a major people that were confronted by the Egyptians as well. They're mentioned in Egyptian texts. Last year, I was invited to London, England to interview for a National Geographic special on the Hittites, and uh, they flew me over. I got off the plane and at 6 o'clock, and by 8 o'clock, I was interviewed for three hours in a studio there, um, and then spent the weekend and then flew back home. Uh, and it was all about the Hittites. What do the Egyptians say about the Hittites? Well, they depict them fighting against the Egyptians. The Egyptians are always winning. They're always uh, on, the, on the battlefront. And today we know that these people not only existed, but that they were a major adversary and a major empire. So sometimes when we don't have evidence, it doesn't mean that the evidence doesn't exist or that the people don't exist. Sometimes silence in the archaeological record, in historical sources, does not mean that there, there, those, those, those uh, nations, those cities did not exist. Archaeologists every year are working in the field and uncovering uh, uh, monuments from the past, and new discoveries are made every single year. Here you see the Hittites. How do we know uh, that they're the Hittites, and how do we know that this is the city of Kadesh? Well, um, it tells us right there. The name is right on the city. Uh, it's the city of Kadesh located on the Orontes River in Syria. And here we have the fallen one of Hatti. You see him fallen there? You see the man down on his hands? Okay, the Egyptian, Egyptian is, of course, a pictographic as well as a phonetic language. And uh, here we have the fallen one of Hatti. And here we have the Hittites depicted defending this particular city. So again, these nations that the Bible talks about are real nations with real kings. We have a whole dynasty of kings ruling over the Hittite Empire. And uh, today we can know a lot more about them thanks to the science of archaeology. But what about the ancient Egyptian scribes? Here we see some female scribes copying on papyrus various manuscripts. What do they have to say about other events in the Bible? One of the most critical events today that is questioned by more people probably than any other event in history is the period of the Israelite sojourn in Egypt, their slavery in Egypt, the exodus and the conquest. Most scholars have written that entire episode out of history. And, and, and that may surprise some of us. Well, don't the Egyptians mention the Israelite, Israelites in their text? Don't they? If this was such a monumental event that, that we read about in several books of the Bible from Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy, 
and Moses was the one who wrote those first five books of the Bible, shouldn't we have more evidence in the archaeological world, particularly in Egypt, concerning this? And my answer is yes and no. First of all, the evidence may exist and we just haven't found it yet because we only have excavated a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what could be excavated in these countries. I've worked at several sites in the Middle East. Some sites have been excavated for 25 years by 200 volunteers and archaeologists working there every single year, but less than 1 or 2 percent of the site is actually excavated at the end of that quarter of a century. Then that all has to be published. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So perhaps we haven't found the evidence yet. That's one possibility. The second possibility is, and this is more likely in my thinking, the Egyptians would never have recorded the events of Moses and the Exodus. Because if you look at Egyptian history, and if you look at all of the Egyptian texts that we have, and I've studied all the military texts of the New Kingdom, that was my dissertation topic, you do not find one single time where the Egyptians mention that they were defeated by another nation. Not only that, you study the Hittite annals and you don't find a single time where the Hittites are describing a defeat by another nation. You study the Assyrian records. You see, victory and success was tied to religion, just as it was, is in the Bible. And these people, in their records, on the temple walls where the gods are interacting with the king, they never admitted defeat. Their seats, yes, their seats right up here. If some of you want to squeeze a little bit more together so other people that are coming in can sit, that would be great. Thank you. You never admit defeat in these places. Why? Because it's admitting the defeat of your god. It's admitting the defeat of your ideology of your religion. And so the Egyptians, yeah, <laughs> the Battle of Kadesh we just talked about, guess what? Ramses II plasters that particular battle against the Hittites all over his temples, and yet, what, what do we find? He claims victory, but we have another text that I just saw at the Istanbul Archaeological Museum this summer in Turkey. It's from the capital city of Hattusha, and guess what the Hittites claim? They claim military victory at the same battle as well. <laughs> and is this so unfamiliar today even? We declared victory several years ago in Iraq, but the Iraqis probably would have a different view of the whole thing. They're still fighting us, aren't they? So, you know, it depends on the perspective. They would not be caught dead admitting defeat. And the defeat that they incurred as a result of the, of the Israelites and Moses was a defeat that struck at the heart of their belief system. Every single one of those plagues was directed against another god. But having said all of that concerning the Exodus and Moses, I'd like this afternoon, in the time that we have, and we have 35 minutes, so I'm going to whiz through this. Some of it's going to go phew, right over the top of your head, but hopefully it'll give you a little bit of an idea. We're going to look at the biblical evidence for where, when the Exodus took place. Then we're going to go back to Egypt on the basis of the biblical chronology and try to figure out when did this take place in Egyptian history 
and see whether the story that we have in Exodus concerning Moses and concerning a princess finding Moses, whether that fits into what was happening in the dynasty of Egypt at that time. Does that make sense? There's no direct connection here because the Bible doesn't mention the name of Pharaoh, does it? It just says Pharaoh. The Bible doesn't mention the name of the princess that rescued Moses from the bulrushes in the Nile. It just says the princess. But there is other evidence from Egypt that helps clarify some of that. The fact is that the Egyptians do mention Israel. Israel is mentioned in Egyptian text for the first time outside of the Bible in history. This text found today in the, Brit in the uh, Egyptian Museum in Cairo is a stela that's about uh, eight feet tall. I'm six, so I'm kind of trying to reach up to eight feet here. Um, eight feet tall, and it documents a campaign first against Libya and then against Canaan by a certain pharaoh, Merneptah. And notice all the entities that he names to have defeated. Tehenu, that's, that's the territory of Libya. Hatti, that's the Hittites. There they are by name. Canaan, another important name that we know from the Bible. Ashkelon, does anybody remember that name? One of the five Philistine cities mentioned in the Bible many times. Gezer, I excavated with Harvard at Ashkelon. It's a wonderful site right on the Mediterranean. You excavate there and you get to go body surfing during your, during your breaks down in the Mediterranean. Gezer, another important Canaanite site that I excavated with the University of Arizona. And Yanoam, up by the Sea of Galilee. And finally, Israel. Notice that Israel is described a little bit differently than the others. A seated man and a woman over three strokes for the plural. This is the Egyptian way of saying this is a group of people, not a territory, not a city. Interesting. And then finally, Huru, which is another alternate, alternative name for Canaan. What's interesting to me is the names that you see here are names that we also know from where? The Bible. And if the Egyptians knew about these names in the second millennium BC and these places and this people, what does it say about the Bible? It works as well, doesn't it? I'm right now completing a study of 120 names throughout the Mediterranean world mentioned in Egyptian texts over a 400-year period. And I'm finding that the Egyptians are very precise at how they describe these people, places, and polities in their sphere of influence. It tells us something about the accuracy of the biblical text. Israel is also shown, possibly, we don't have an inscription here going with it, but at the reliefs at Karnak that mirror the activities on this particular text. Here we have Israel. And uh, notice they're not uh, living in a city. They're out in the open, which is interesting because the text indicates there are people not connected necessarily with the territory at this time. The, the Merneptah stela dates very clearly at the top of the stela to the fifth year of King Merneptah. Merneptah was the 13th son of Ramses II, the longest reigning pharaoh in Egypt. And Merneptah was an old man of, well, I don't want to offend anybody. He was an elderly gentleman by the uh, age of 66 when he came to the throne. His father was the longest reigning pharaoh who had over 200 sons, by many wives, of course. And uh, that particular pharaoh who sired all those sons had 12 sons die out on him before Merneptah ever got to the throne. And he only reigned for 10 years. But 1209 BC, the first mention ever of Israel. 
Israel is already at this time not in Egypt, but is listed among the cities in where? Canaan. Very important. That means that prior to this time, the exodus would have had to take place, right? Because Israel at this time is already in Canaan. All right, um, there's a couple of seats up here. Autumn, do you mind if you scoot over just one? All right. All right. There's a couple seats up here. And uh, if you guys want to squeeze, there's a couple seats over here as well. It's fine. So by 1209 BC, that provides the date by which time the Exodus needed to take place. So we go back. Let's look at the Bible because the Bible is our source of great information over this. Uh, the Bible tells us in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, a very important uh, bit of information. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. Solomon reigned a lot later than, than Moses, right? So this is talking not about Moses as much as it is talking about Solomon. What happened? In the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So what is this text about in 1 Kings? It's about the building of the temple in Jerusalem. But the building of the temple is dated back to something that occurred earlier. 480 years after what? After the Israelites came out of Egypt. So 480 years after the Exodus is when the temple was built. That gives us a datum point to the time of the Exodus because we know exactly when the temple was built. How do we know that? Because finally in the book of Kings, we have other kings mentioned besides the Israelite kings. We have King Shishak mentioned, and we know he was Sheshonk I. Sheshonk I reigned in 925 B.C. That's when he attacked Jerusalem, actually. And we extrapolate back from his reign, and we know that the temple was built then around 970, 966 B.C., somewhere in that area. Now, some scholars look at this verse, and they go back to the first part of it, and they say 480 years. That's a really round number. I mean, if it was 481, that could be a little bit more accurate. 480 is too round. This is not really a, a, a reliable number. As if we can determine that, you know, 4,000 years or 3,000 years after this was written. Now, now, there's another element here, though. They say, they say these are multiple generations, maybe 12 generations of, of 40 years or so. But notice what the second part of the verse says. It not only gives the, day, the, the, the year, it gives what? The month of Ziv. That's a lot more particular than simply saying, 481 or 483, right? So we have some specificity here. And so if we use that kind of chronology and we say Solomon's temple was built around 970, some would put it in 966, we could extrapolate then that 480 years before that, before the building of the temple is where it took place. So again, using a timeline based on the Bible, 970, you go back 480 years, the Exodus took place around 1450, and then 40 years, Moses was in the wilderness in exile after slaying the Egyptian. And then the Bible tells, and it tells us he was 80 when he finally came back to Egypt to ask for the freedom of God's people. So he was born 40 years prior to that, around 1530 B.C., according to convention, conventional chronology. So now we're going to take what is stated in the Bible, 
not in terms BC, but in terms of the date of the Exodus, we're going to go back into ancient Egyptian history now and look and see what was taking place, who was reigning around 1530 BC, what was happening around 1490 BC, what was going on at that time. And we come to the 18th dynasty. Moses is born during the reign of Thutmose III. The 18th dynasty was the golden age of Egypt. This was the time period when you have kings like the 17, 18-year-old King Tut. Ever hear of him? He was at the end of the dynasty, and he only reigned for a few years. He has the smallest tomb in the Valley of the Kings. You have other famous kings like Thutmose III and Thutmose I. But the first part of the dynasty, there was a major crisis. It didn't come as a, about from an attack from the Hittites or some kind of invading force from the outside. It was an internal family crisis. Because you see, the kings of the first part of the 18th dynasty were not producing male heirs by the chief queen. And what that meant was that when they died, there was no legitimate successor that could take over the throne of Egypt. It always went through the dynastic line. Notice what Professor William Murnane from the University of Memphis wrote in the authoritative Anchor Bible Dictionary. The first major crisis was what? Dynastic involving tensions within the royal family which festered over the next three generations. Women continued to hold the position of chief queen at the expense of the non-royal women who did what? who bore the king's sons. So non-royal women bore the king's sons, but there was a, a whole crisis in terms of who was to become king next and so forth. We're going to come back to this in a moment. So here's Tutmosis I, reigned from 1531. When was Moses born? 1530 about, okay. And his chief queen is Ahmes. But they have no male heirs. When, when Thutmose I dies, they do have one daughter, and her name is Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut is a famous person. We're going to talk about her some more. Hatshepsut is the daughter. I'm using the blue here to indicate the royal line, okay? But when Thutmose I, her father, dies, Hatshepsut is left without, there's no real clear male heir. So what happens is, uh, well, we'll talk about what happens in a moment. It's interesting here that in the, in the biblical text, Pharaoh commands all his people, what? Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile. This would have been the Pharaoh Tutmose I if we follow the biblical chronology. And it's interesting that he's ordering this in the middle of a time when he is himself facing a dynastic crisis. He's having plenty of daughters, but no male heirs. Kind of interesting. You know, we can just point that out. It doesn't have to necessarily tie into this. But notice, every son who is born to you, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Well, when Thutmose I dies, a secondary wife, Mutnefret, uh, produces the heir, Thutmose II, who's really a half-brother, or I should say a step-brother, to Hatshepsut, and Hatshepsut marries her step-brother. This is not unusual, not only in Egypt, but it also is not unusual in in European uh, royal families and dynastic history, as you well know. Uh, they were all connected, you know. So the, uh, Catherine the Great of Russia was the first cousin of the Prince of Wales in England during that final period of the, of the Russian dynasty. So here, she marries Tutmosis II, 
who is a very sickly individual and who only, according to most Egyptologists, maybe reigns two to three years. And I'm sorry, that's the only picture I have of Thutmose II. <laughs> but when he dies, <laughs> that's his mummy, when he dies, the question comes again, who is going to be the male heir of this new dynasty, Dynasty 18, which we call it today, in Egypt? Who is going to take over the kingship? The, the royal line is through Hatshepsut, but here we have Thutmose II continuing. So again, through a secondary wife, Iset, Iset in this case, we have a young, young king. Some think he was only two to three years old when his father died not old enough to rule over an entire nation like Egypt, of course. And so what happens is that when Thutmose III comes to the throne, Hatshepsut goes into a co-regency with him. You know what I'm talking about when a co-regency? It means there are two kings. Hatshepsut is really the one ruling, but Thutmose III also holds the title as the three-year-old or four-year-old as he's growing up within the courts of Egypt. He's destined to be king eventually, but not at that early point in time. The problem is that as Hatshepsut continues, isn't that a nicer picture of Hatshepsut there? By the way, we have a lot of, a lot of major statuary and, and other kinds of sculpture on Hatshepsut. Um, the Metropolitan Museum two years ago had a wonderful exhibit on Hatshepsut and, and a lot of uh, materials from that place. They go into this co-regency, but when Thutmose III does come, into the age where he could be king, what happens? Does Hatshepsut let him be king? Well, he's king. He still has the title of king. She puts him in charge of the armies and sends him off, which is kind of a dangerous thing to do in one sense, but he does that, and she continues to reign over Egypt. Egyptologists to this day don't know why. Some think maybe she just got used to power and wanted to retain, you know, what she was doing. She was the first pharaoh, female pharaoh of Egypt. Think about that for a moment. Very, very different uh, kind of arrangement. But she was a very good ruler as far as we can tell. And she was one of the greatest builders of that time period. Now that brings us to the question, why would an Egyptian princess, and scholars have asked this for years, why would an Egyptian princess adopt a Hebrew slave boy that was hidden by his mother in the Nile River. Could it be, could it be that this dynastic crisis could explain that in a little bit? Herodotus called Egypt the gift of the Nile. And the Nile was in fact worshipped as a god, as many other things were. They worshipped nature, they worshipped animals, they worshipped everything it seems like. But the Nile was key to the belief system of ancient Egypt. It was the center of the cosmos, the center of their whole ideology. The sun rose on one side of the Nile and sank down in the other side of the Nile. And so even though they worshiped the god Ra, the sun, it revolved around the Nile. The Nile would swallow it up at night and give birth to it during the day, or the goddess Newt would, at any rate. Notice what it says here. And the child grew. This is after Moses is given back to his bi biological mother. The child grew, the Bible says, and she, his biological mother, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And he became her son. Ellen White tells us he was about 12 years old when this happened. 
Now, what else does it say? And she named him. Who named him? Hatshepsut. Well, the Pharaoh's daughter. The Bible doesn't tell us it's Hatshepsut, but the Pharaoh's daughter names him. Notice that. It's not Moses' mother that names him 12 years afterwards. It's Pharaoh's daughter that names him. And what does she say? Because I drew him out of the water. That's the reason that the Bible gives. Could it be that Hatshepsut goes back to the palace and says, look, look at this gift that the Nile has just given to Egypt. We now have an heir. I mean, how, 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 how common, how often have you found a baby floating down, you know, the Ocoee River here in Tennessee? Or, uh, or, or, you know, the Tennessee River uh, going through Chattanooga. I mean, it doesn't happen very often, does it? Okay, so here she finds this baby, and she says, because I drew him out of the water. She names him Moses. And most people today who are scholars and who understand the ancient languages recognize that Moses is not a Hebrew name originally. I know it's, it is today. We, Moshe is a Hebrew name. But in ancient times, Moses was not a Hebrew name. It was an Egyptian name. It's found in all of the names that you see here. Famous names of the famous kings of Egypt. Do you notice that? Let's put them apart. Maybe you can recognize it better now. Thutmose. Ramose. This is kind of a, a, a Greek, later Greek uh, version of Ram Ramesses. Is kind of, it's Ramose, actually. And Mose means in, in Egyptian, son of or descendant of. So Ramses is called the descendant of whom? Ra. Who is Thut? Tutankhamun. Same, same word. Tutankhamun. Ankh, it means life. And Amun uh, means, uh, is another god of the, of the pantheon. Thoth is the god of writing and wisdom and literature. He is always shown as an ibex. You see his beak there? But he's always shown with with uh, uh, a stylus in one hand. Notice he's writing on this text here. So the kings of the 18th dynasty were known as, as uh, kings who specifically worshipped Thoth. They were the sons of Thoth. Moses is given an Egyptian name. But notice when he writes the first five books of the Bible, he doesn't put an Egyptian name in front of his name. What does that mean? Because he is the God of the one who is nameless. The one at the burning bush who said, when Moses asked him, who shall I say sent me? Tell them the I am sent you. Yahweh, the I am. Hebrews 11.24 says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Ellen White tells us that Moses had the highest education. He was destined to be the next king of Egypt. The Bible says he refused that. And part of the reason he refused it is that for him to have that theophoric element to his name, for him to have that Egyptian god attached to his name, he had to go through all the rituals and become a, de a, 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 become a deified person himself in order to enter into the kingship of Egypt. Because the king of Egypt was born by the gods. He was Horus incarnate. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. 
And we know the story, Exodus chapter 2, how Moses, when he had grown, goes out, he sees an Egyptian beating up this slave, and what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands, kills the Egyptian, and a few days later, word has gotten around, and Moses fears that he needs to leave. He flees before the face of Pharaoh. Is he fleeing before Hatshepsut? Or could he be fleeing before the face of his rival, Tutmosa III? We don't know the answer, but it's interesting that this is the dynamics that's happening, happening at that time. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage, and their cry for help rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What were the Israelites doing at this time in Egypt? They were making, were they building the pyramids? No, the pyramids had already been there for hundreds of years. They were not building with stone. What were they building with? Mud brick. Brick made with clay and so forth. Now, one of the things that's interesting with this passage is that the king of Egypt is referred to here in this text as he. And if the king of Egypt is Hatshepsut, that's a, maybe a little bit of a problem. But it's really not a problem because Hatshepsut, being the first king of Egypt, took on masculine titles she was the first female king, and she took on masculine titles in her name. Look at this obelisk. It still stands at Karnak today. It weighs 600 tons. It's made out of a solid piece of granite that comes from Aswan, which is about 300 to 400 kilometers to the south. It was taken up by ship. Hatshepsut shows on her temple at Deir el-Bari how, how these obelisks were moved by a whole flotilla of barges. And this is what it says on her obelisk, which was once covered in gold. She made her monument to her father, Amun. Who was her father? Amun. She has a divine father. Amun was the god of Thebes. Lord of the thrones of the two lands, the erecting to him two great obelisks at the august gateway, Amun, great of majesty, made with fine gold. They illuminate the two lords like the sun disk, made for him... By the who? Son of Ra, or Re, Hatshepsut. So she refers to himself, herself as what? The son of Re, okay? Hatshepsut, Kenanemet, Amun, given life like Re eternally. That's just one of the texts on one of the sides. Now, while this is all going on in Egypt, what is happening to the Israelites? Many scholars for many years thought, well, the Israelites, they're making brick with Straw. That doesn't make any sense. Do we build our houses with brick with straw in them? They don't do that in Europe much either, so they thought, this is strange. This doesn't make any sense. Brick with straw, that must be some kind of an anachronism or mistake in the Bible. Until we began excavating there, and we began to find tomb paintings like this one showing Asiatics. We don't know whether they were uh, the Israelites, but Asiatics. And what are they making? They're making brick. And here are the piles of straw that they're using. There's text to go along with this. And uh, they're laying out those bricks. You don't only need this. You can read in Papyrus Anastasi 1, another text from the time of Ramses II. What does it say? I am without equipment. There are no people to make bricks, and there is no straw in the district. This last year, I was in Seattle at the uh, professional meetings for the American Research Center in Egypt, which is the largest Egyptology meeting in North America. And I went to a presentation by a gentleman who has been excavating at the time of Ahmose 
and later, right at the time when Moses was alive and the children of Israel were in bondage, they found that the storehouses that were built there with mud bricks were built primarily by children between the ages of 8 and 15. They, sent, they, had, they had footprints that were still preserved in the ground, in the, in the, in the, not in the sand, but in the, in the mud as they trampled and made the mud bricks and as they took, took the material over there. And they took photographs and measurements, sent it to Johns Hopkins uh, University where they have um, a, a children's hospital and there they, they evaluated and, and came up with estimates on ages and so forth. And I thought, wow, that's just the time when the Israelites are building what? Storehouses in Egypt. That connection wasn't made by the scholar giving the presentation, but I was thinking it in, as I was listening on the side. Here, if you go to the Temple of Ramses, if you go to the Temple of Ramses, you can see those storehouses still today, not the ones that the Israelites built. This is about 200 years later, but what are they made out of? Mud brick. And it's, this is not reconstructed here. This is the actual mud brick as they've been excavated. And that's my hand. See, there's my watch. I'm still wearing the same watch. This was two years ago in 2006 when we took a group of students over. And look at these little particles. You see them here? And I'm pointing to some here. This is straw that is still sticking in the brick today. Because it's such a dry climate, it's preserved in those climates. And you can see that that was the technique that was used. But you don't even have to go to the Ramesseum to see this. Just go up and down the Nile River. People are still making bricks the same way they are today as they were making them 3,500 years ago. The houses are still being built out of the same material. You go, th go through Cairo and you still see apartment buildings made out of mud brick, built out of mud brick. Let's go back to Hatshepsut. We have only a few minutes left. Hatshepsut, this amazing builder and pharaoh of Egypt. She was a great builder. She built the temple of Deir el-Bari, which set the architectural plan for temples for the next 400 years of Egyptian history. This was her mortuary temple. And what we find at her mortuary temple, particularly in this corner right here where she has a special temple, dedicated to Hathor. There are various temples built in here. Hatshepsut is interacting with the gods. They are legitimizing her role as Pharaoh of Egypt. And in this particular, here's Hathor. You can see her here. Hathor is the cow goddess. You notice the ears on this image? Face of a woman, but the ears of a cow. All right? How, how wonderful. Uh, and and here, is, here is Hatshepsut. Notice what she's doing. I've never tried this before. Although I have had milk before, it should be about the same, I suppose. Um, but look at this. What does this mean? It means that she is being suckled by the goddess Hathor, who is her divine mother. And if you look here in the front, who is Hathor being led by? Amun, the god of Thebes. So this is her, her divine father. This is her divine mother. And this is a legitimation scene saying, I am the divinely appointed and born king of Egypt. My wife wrote a paper for her graduate class down at Emory University last year and went through some of this stuff. It's fascinating to see how legitimation is used in Egypt. But something amazing takes place. We don't know exactly how. But there comes a point where Hatshepsut simply disappears from history. We don't know if she was murdered. We don't know if she died. We don't know what happened to her. But someone 
begins to erase her image from the temples in Egypt. And when you do that, you're basically erasing someone not only from the annals of history, but from experiencing the afterlife. Notice the two gods here. You recognize this one? Thoth with the ibis beak again. And uh, Horus, they're pouring anks over the queen. The queen's been erased. Her cartouche, where her name appears, has not been completely erased, so we can tell it's her but she's been erased in the center here. The Ankh is the symbol of eternal life and it's being poured over her as she is prepared uh, to enter the afterlife. We find that in images throughout, here are uh, some others, in images throughout, Hatshepsut's image is erased, not all of them. There's one where she is still uh, appearing uh, and notice she's dressed primarily as a man there, complete with a beard in this particular instance. Who did this? Egyptologists agree that it was probably Thutmose III finally getting his revenge on his aunt who kept him suppressed all those years when he should have been the king of Egypt. Thutmose III. And this is what the Metropolitan Museum of Arts book said in just in 2006. There was a, a scholar from the University of Chicago's Oriental Institute that was contemplating what may have been the cause for Hatshepsut's demise and what may have been the cause for this uh, problem at the end of her reign. The interesting thing is that this happens not at the beginning when Hatshepsut disappears from history, but 20 years after she is already out of the picture, at the very end of Thutmose III's reign, right at the end. And this is what Professor Dorman says. After 50 years on the throne, that's both his co-regency with Hatshepsut and his sole regency on his own, Tutmose can have had little to fear by way of challenges to his own legitimacy or comparison with his former co-regent. The need for the proscription, that's the erasure, the need for the proscription seems to have arisen toward the end of his reign and to have vanished shortly after Amenhotep II became co-ruler, two years before Tutmose III's death. At least that's his estimate. We don't really know. The timing and short duration of the attack on Hatshepsut's image and name suggests that it was driven by concerns related to what? The royal succession and ceased once Amenhotep was securely enthroned. It has been suggested that toward the end of Thutmose III's life, there were two contenders to the throne. One, the Skion of the Thutmoside dynastic line of the king himself and the other representing the Ahmosite bloodline to which Hatshepsut directly belonged through her mother. The proscription of Hatshepsut would then have been initiated in order to discredit the legitimacy of the rival. And you're thinking right now, what rival? Who came back after the burning bush from Sinai? Moses. What does he do as he comes into the courts of Egypt? He asks for his people's freedom, and then he does something amazing. The pharaoh says, who, who sent you anyway? And who knows, maybe that pharaoh was Thutmose III, or maybe it was Amenhotep II, we're not really sure. But if it was his childhood rival, Thutmose III, it tells you why Moses may have delayed and made excuses to God for going back. At any rate, there he is. He's standing in the court of Pharaoh, and he just points to his brother and says, Aaron, do it. And Aaron, what does he do? Cast down the serpent, uh, the, the staff. And what does it do? It turns into a serpent. 
And what does the serpent do? It eats all the other staffs of the other magicians that create serpents. Have you ever looked at an Egyptian? What does he have on his forehead? A cobra serpent. You've seen the mask of King Tut. Let me show it to you. We don't have time to talk about it all. But this is in Thutmose III's tomb. It's the serpent that is leading Thutmose III, his body, through the stages of the afterlife. The serpent is one of the key deities of ancient Egypt. It is the protector of the king. And now Moses is basically saying, my God, through throwing down that staff, is more powerful than any serpent that Egypt can produce. And of course, that was the prelude to 10 very vicious plagues, beginning with what? The Nile and water being turned into blood. Does that say something about the God that we serve? He is powerful, but it also tells us something about Egyptian history and where all of these stories may fit in. Do we know for certain that Hatshepsut is the princess that rescued Moses? No. But the more I study this period of history in the 18th dynasty, the more the pieces of the puzzle seem to fit. And so it, it, it teaches me anyway that as we study the word of God and as we study ancient history and the increasing materials that come out of through archaeology and through these various uh, avenues, the more we can have confidence that when the Bible speaks, it speaks with authority and it speaks with the reality of what is taking place during those times. Now, I have some more slides here that we didn't have time to get into, but we have two more presentations. One is coming up at uh, just next, and that will be on Hezekiah, Isaiah, and the campaign of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, to Jerusalem. Did that event take place? No other, this was, this was a little bit speculative today, but the next presentation, there's no room for speculation. We have more corroborating evidence from Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians, from Lachish, the city that was attacked by the Assyrians, and from the Bible than any other event in history. All of those things converge and give us a fuller picture of that campaign and the, the uh, siege of Jerusalem that took place then. And then, right after that, we're going to have a break again, another 10-minute break, and then we get into the question of the gods and goddesses of ancient Israel. We have some really amazing uh, things to share as well. So thank you very much. Any questions? I don't hear other people letting out yet, but I know some of you want to get to all the seminars. Yes? Why do they all stick figures? Yes. Well, again, I didn't have time to go into this. Most of the images in these tombs were actually carved in relief and then beautifully painted. What I think happened here with these stick figures is that this, this tomb of Thutmose III was prepared very rapidly. We don't find this kind of style in any of the other 18th dynasty tombs. And so these stick figures to me represent, here's a serpent again, you see him? And the Ankh next to him. Look at the Ankh above the serpent's head here, the Ankh again being the symbol of eternal life. These, the, the, these, this could be indication, William Shea has, has argued anyway, Dr. Shea, that this is an indication that this tomb was prepared very hastily and that perhaps Thutmose III was in fact the pharaoh who died in the Red Sea and caused his tomb to have to be, uh, 
uh, shall we say, the finishing of the tomb to be accelerated to, uh, to receive uh, either the body or a substitute of the body of the king. All right, I'll let you go. If some of you want to stay, that's great. But uh, it's time to uh, switch out. And uh, we will be going to our next presentation, which will be on Sennacherib.